The Parsha is filled with sections that we're all very familiar with, and then the one section that I think many of us are not so familiar with is the section I'd like to focus on. Okay? Is that okay? It's on page 310. <laughs> page 310, and uh, verse 18, or so on page 311, verse 18, or 310, Pasuk um, Yurches. We're going to jump in. This is when Moshe, you know, there's been a long dialogue in the Parsha, back and forth and back and forth with God and Moshe about Moshe going on this mission. And finally, Moshe acquiesces. He ag- agrees. He said, I'm going to go. And before he goes, we learn a little bit about the journey. And that's what we're going to focus on, this journey that Moshe goes on. Um, we're going to read about this journey, his traveling from Midian, where he is with his father-in-law and his wife and their family, on his way to Egypt. So we're going to read a snippet of that passage. We're going to learn it, what I'll call the simple understanding, and then we'll take it on a very different, a different way of looking at it. Okay? Plan? Let's do it. Okay. And excuse me for a bit of a cold. Okay. No, nothing. I'm not contagious or anything. Just everybody knows. We're good. We're good. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Pasuk uh, There we go. Vayelech Moshe, Vayashav el Yasser Chosno. So after God spoke to Moshe and Moshe agreed, Moshe said, fine, I'm going to go. And he goes back to Yisro, or here he's referred to as Yasser, his father-in-law. Vayomer lo, and he said to him, Elchana, I will go. Vayashuva, and I'll return. Elachai to my brothers, Asher b'Mitzrayim, in Egypt. Ve'ere ha'oda mechayim. I will see if they are still alive. Vayomer Yisro Moshe, and Yisro says to Moshe, Lech le shalom. Go in peace. Now, a couple of interesting things about this verse. First of all, it's said in the singular. Elcha means I will go back. Okay? Okay? It doesn't say it in the plural. That's one interesting thing. Two is the double terminology. It says, I will go and I will return. One of those would have been sufficient. He could have just said, I will return to Egypt. Or he could have just said, I will go to Egypt. Pick one. What does it mean? I will go, I will return. So let's answer, answer both those questions. So the Sforno, Rav Avadio Sforno, um, Sforno says that Moshe really plans on going back to Egypt by himself. In a few verses, we're going to read about uh, Moshe's family. He's traveling with his family. Moshe suggests that what we're about to read is Moshe taking his family to Midian from the desert that they lived in at this time. It's worth noting that Moshe was not living in Midian. Moshe was living in the desert. We'll come back to that soon. And he perhaps is taking his family from the desert to Midian, dropping them off. You stay with your father-in-law in this place called Midian, and then Moshe's going to go. That's the easiest way to, to, to see this. Others disagree and say that Moshe was actually going with all of them, and we'll come back to that, uh, to that point. Most understand that even though he's speaking in the singular, Moshe plans on taking his family with him. And we'll come back, we'll see, is that a good decision? Not a good decision? Do you take your family, you know, to Egypt? Uh, what we call the modern day equivalent of a war zone, a pretty dangerous place. Was that a good idea? Not a good idea? We'll, we'll come back to that. In terms of the question of, I will go and I will return, the Malvim explains that Moshe thought he was going to go. Tell Paro, let my people go. Applause, he'd go back home, and that'd be it. He didn't realize he was going to be all in, okay? He's going to learn quickly. Don't worry. Okay. Pasuk Yotes, verse 19. And God said to Moshe in Midian, Go back to Egypt. All the people who wanted to kill you are no longer living. Who are the people who wanted to kill him? There were some Jews who didn't like him, right? Remember he, uh, perhaps Dasan and Aviram, some people, Paro didn't like him. God's saying, don't worry, you'll be safe, okay? Fine, let's keep on reading. Moshe takes his wife, 
his sons, Vayakivim Alachamor, and he puts them on the donkey, Vayashav Artsa Mitzrayim, and returns to Egypt. Vayikach Moshe's Mate Halukim Biyado. Moshe took this godly staff. Okay, so the Torah doesn't give us too much background about this godly staff, but we know that Moshe has a staff. We later hear how he uses the staff for all amazing purposes. There are many fantastical midrashim that describe the staff, kind of similar to uh, what is it, uh, King Arthur? Right? That is that was King Arthur at that sword, right? Yeah. Um, similar, where it's stuck in the ground and no one's able to get it out, and only Moshe is able to pull the staff out of the ground. Okay, whatever, one way or another, that's this godly staff that he takes with him and he takes his wife and his son. So again, according to the Sforno, he's taking his wife and his sons from the desert where he lives and sending them back to Midian where he's going to leave them and then go on his own way. Others understand that, no, he is actually taking his family with him. Why is he taking his family with him? The Malbim suggest that at this point, Moshe understands that he is going to be spending more time in Egypt. It's not a business trip, you know. See, see you in a week, honey. See you in a month, honey. You know, he's going to be there for a while. So he takes his wife and children. That's one way of understanding it. The Ramban says something fascinating. The Ramban says, you know why he takes his wife and children? He said, okay, so again, is it wise to take your wife and children? So let's say I'm going to, I remember, you know, a month and a half ago, I went to Israel. Many people said, don't go, don't go, shouldn't go, right? Uh, why shouldn't I go? Because it's a war zone, right? You know, that if, that before I went, I had to sign, it was, to, it, was a, it was a mission, it was a trip. I had to sign that my life insurance policy would not be in effect if anything, heaven forbid, happens to me, okay? You didn't know your son-in-law did that, did you? Uh, but you're, okay, sorry, her son-in-law also, twice, twice. Her son-in-law just went twice to, to Israel. Her son-in-law is a very, very, uh, very special rabbi out in, in, in New York um, and a good friend of mine. So, um, but, but the bottom line is, right, so, so it's bad enough that I went. So if I told those same people who said, don't go, I said, I'm going to take my, my children with me, I'm going to take my wife, they'd say, you're out of your mind, right? What are you doing, right? So on the one hand, it's crazy. What would be the counter argument? What would be the value of taking his family with him? Again, Moshe's going, we're going to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, he takes his kids with him, he takes his wife with him. A lot of people are saying, you're crazy. What would be the value of taking the family? It's a long time away, so there's a pragmatic, familial, uh, you know, piece of this, which which is which is fair. Well, I, to confuse us, the people say, "Here I come, my whole." Excellent, excellent. That's good, and that's what the Ramban says. The Ramban says, "Yes." The Malbim says along the lines of what you're saying. Yeah, he's there because he needs his family. They're part of their unit. The Ramban says he's doing that to inspire confidence. They show this guy shows up, and he's like, "Oh, we're gonna leave Egypt." what are you talking about, right? But if he comes back to Egypt with his kids, with his wife, that shows confidence. It shows that he believes they're really leaving. We're leaving. I wouldn't take my kids to this place unless I believed in it. If, if I didn't, you know, it shows his confidence in what he's doing and that inspires confidence in the people. Beautiful. Seems like a very wise and strategic thing to do. Okay. Now here we have a funny little interjection, which we're going to come back to. Vayomer Hashem El Moshe. Now God appears to Moshe again. Now again, God spoke to Moshe a lot. And he said, go on this journey. And Moshe starts going on this journey. But God appears to him again and says, When you go to return to Egypt, See that I'll give you all these great signs, these wonders, these miracles, which you will do in front of Paro. I will strengthen his heart and he will not send them. He gives Moshe a spoiler alert, as we say. He says, Moshe... You know, it's, he's not going to send them so easily. We're at Pasuk Chav Beis, 22 right now, on page 310. Okay, Chav Beis, 22. Va, va paro, and you should say to Paro, verse 22, Chav Beis. You should say to Paro, Ko Amar Hashem, so said God, B'ni v'chori Yisrael. The Jewish people, 
my firstborn, uh, the, my child, my firstborn, Israel. In other words, God wants Paro to understand that the Jewish people are his firstborn. Vomar elacha, and I say to you, this is Moshe who's supposed to say this in his, uh, you know, to God. Shalach es beni ve'avdeni, send my child and let him serve me. It's interesting, it's in the singular over here, right? It doesn't say send my children. Right? Is that how they translate it? Send my, um, send out my son, right? Send out my son, my child. Ve'avdeni, let him serve me. Ve'atima'ein l'shalcho, and, you know, if you reject, if you refuse, you hold back, rather, to send him. Hinei anochi horeg esbincha becharecha, I will kill your firstborn son. So what's interesting over here is two things. One is the, the fact that God repeats this message to him. In other words, Moshe no, knew already. We didn't read all these verses. But as I, you know, this is not the first time God is speaking to Moshe. Remember, God appeared to him in the burning bush. And they had this long, according to some, a week-long dialogue where God said, I'm going to send you to Egypt and you're going to tell Paro to let the people go and I'm going to kill all of his firstborns, etc., etc." Okay? And then Moshe says, fine, I'll do it. And now he's on his way, like in the middle of his trip. It's like, you know, you're, you're going already. Moshe, God calls again. Uh, yes, God, what is it? By the way, I'm going to send you to Egypt for my firstborn. You're going to tell Paro, my firstborn son, uh, you know, the Jewish people, and you're going to refuse to send them. I'm going to kill your firstborn son. I know that. Right? What's going on? Right? This is, this is repetition. It's repetition. That's one troubling thing. The other interesting thing is the singular of this whole section. Right? Uh, the singular of this whole section. Why is it all said in the singular? It should be said in the plural. Send my children, not my son. Send my sons. You know, send my sons, not my son. And I will kill your firstborns or your firstborn children, not your firstborn. Right? So it's interesting that it's said in the singular. Okay, those are some questions. Ibn Ezra says, eh, it's not a question. He says the Torah is not always in order. Really, this passage was said earlier on, and that's his answer. It's not the best answer, because even if it was said out of order, why does God put it over here? Why in the Torah is it written over here? Even if chronologically it happened out of order, why is it written in this fashion? We have to come back to that. Okay, so let's keep on reading now. And here we have a very interesting tale um, that, that, that we'll read about. Chavdal, the all. Why the sons and not the daughters? Yeah, um, so it's a good question, but, but it seems, you know, in the ancient world, certainly the firstborn sons were the ones who were next in power. They were the ones who were the most important. Uh, they are the ones who, who led the family. They were the leaders of the family. And, and by the way, this goes on for, for centuries. They, they say, you know, uh, I, I should, even now sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you have firstborn. They say that if you look at the, the records of those who came into uh, the United States, I mentioned this, I mentioned this different, did I mention this, I mentioned this other week, right? It's, it's, it's not the firstborn, right? The firstborn, yeah, sorry, I apologize. What's it called? But yeah, the firstborn is, was something which was, was always significant. It was the boy, it was the boy. The, the women didn't, you know, in the not so ancient world, the women didn't take control. Okay. Chavdal, um, strange little episode. On the bottom of page 310 or 311, 24, Chavdal. As they were traveling to the hotel. What do you mean the hotel? The inn, not a hotel. Uh, sorry, that's an anachronistic word. I apologize. But they went to the inn. They had to stop along the way. They had to go rest, right? He's with his family. Hashem. And God encountered him. hamiso, And wanted to kill him. Okay. What? What just happened? Right? This is the strangest little change of, of a narrative over here. Moshe's on his way to Mitzrayim. He's going to save the Jewish people. And all of a sudden, right, he's on his way to the, to the inn, right? And God encounters him and he wants to kill him. Okay. So, so what's going on over here? So the commentators fill in a whole bunch of uh, background. The Rashbam, 
The Rashbam is Rashi's grandson. Okay, it's an acronym. Um, the Rashbam says, you know, he always sticks to the simple understanding. The Rashbam says, you know why he's being, God is trying to kill who? He's going to be killing Moshe. God is causing, why, why, why is he going to be killing Moshe? Because Moshe is stopping at an inn. What's wrong with stopping at an inn? So the Rashbam suggests the whole idea of Moshe bringing his family is a bad idea. It's a bad idea because on the one hand, yeah, it's going to inspire the people. At the same time, I'll be, you know, when I, when I, when I, when, when, when I'm by myself and I wake up in the morning and I want to go to shul or want to go to work or whatever, it takes me six minutes, right? When I want to get my kids out of the door in the morning, it takes us an hour and a half, right? And that's even if it's just one kid, right? Uh, it takes an hour and a half. So Moshe, basically, Moshe, what are you doing? Stop, you're stopping on the inn. Basically, the Rosh Bob says, what you did over here, that's a mistake. You, you have this mission to save the Jewish people. Imagine, the, the, you, 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 you're, you're, you're a fireman. You get called to fire. Like, oh, I have to take care of my family. You're crazy, right? God says, Moshe, go save the Jewish people. Every minute, you have millions of people who are depending on you. It's not the time and place to take your family. And therefore, this whole notion of him stopping at the inn, that's a sin. That is Moshe not taking his job as seriously as he should. It's him delaying and delaying a second when someone's life is in danger. It's a grave sin. And therefore, says the Rashbam, Moshe is being punished over here for not going quickly enough. He should not have been bringing his family. And we'll see, we're not going to see it together, but ultimately he sent his family back. And that's how the Rashbam understands this passage. There's another approach, which is an approach taken by many of our sages. And that is that there is another son that was born. Moshe has two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. Okay, Gershom is his oldest son, his firstborn. And then he has Eliezer, the second child. The classical commentators suggest that Moshe gave birth um, um, to, to, uh, to, this, uh, to this other son, to the son of, not Moshe, his wife, Zippor, excuse me, gave birth, sorry, uh, to, to Eliezer. And Moshe is stopping in the inn in order to be able to give him a circumcision. Okay, um, basically Moshe thinks, you know, not, not so, Moshe, well, you know, different ways of understanding. I'll, I'll go with the simplest approach. Basically, Moshe delays circumcising his son. They're traveling. It's not very safe to circumcise someone as you're traveling, especially it's a desert, desert, desert terrain, you know. So basically Moshe is traveling gingerly, slowly. His wife just gave birth to a baby. We understand, you know, obviously. And he's delaying giving birth. Okay, and that's what uh, and that's what we're reading over here. And basically, because he delays, excuse me, delays circumcision. Because he delays the circumcision, that's why God is going to be is vayivakesh hamiso. Something's going to happen over here where Moshe's life is in danger because he delays circumcising his son, his newborn son Eliezer. Yes. Didn't Zipporah, uh, <laughs> circumcise? Ah, let's keep on reading. Good. Let's turn the page. Good, 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 good. Let's keep on reading. You're going to see that's what's going to happen. So clearly, you know, and, and this approach helps us understand this next verse because Zipporah is going to do something very strange in the next verse. Um, and just to explain, you know, Rashi explains when it says that he tried to kill him. I mean, tried to, if God tries to kill someone, do they have a chance? Of course not. So so he tried to kill him implies that there is this act which was like this almost like half-hearted act. It was like an attempt, an attempt, an attempt. And the Mepharshim, the commentators explain that this big, like snake-like animal came and basically started swallowing up Moshe, but only going to his midsection and then let him go. And then swallowed him up to his midsection and then let him go. So if you're watching this, you're like, something's going on over here. So you'll now understand the next verse. Tzipora comes along, Tzipora's his wife. Vatikach Tzipora tzor. Tzipora takes a sharp stone. Vatichros es orlas bena. And she circumcises 
the, the foreskin of her son, she throws it by his feet, and she says, you, are, you caused my bridegroom's bloodshed. She's talking about her chasan, her husband. You're caused, you almost caused my husband's blood, bloodshed seemingly by not being circumcised, right? Moshe over here is incapacitated. He is, according to the Midrashim, being swallowed up by this uh, snake. According to others, like the Ibn Ezra suggests that maybe he just became very sick and he wasn't able to circumcise. Moshe, like, he, meaning, you know, Moshe became very ill at this point and therefore Tzipporah recognized something was going on. She circumcises their younger son who they were delaying the circumcision. They said, oh, we're not going to circumcise him right away. She goes ahead and circumcises the son, and um, right, and then and, and Moshe or Moshe or Eliezer is saved. Okay, Vayira Fimenu, and uh, okay, let's let's so fine. Let, let's stop. Basically, Moshe saved, and they continue on their journey. That's the end of the passage. Any questions? No. Great. Okay, so let's summarize according to the simple understanding of this passage. Simple understanding of this passage is that Moshe is traveling either with, either to take his family to Egypt or according to some to drop his family off in Midian. One way or another, he's traveling with his family. There is this supernatural attack, whether it's through this snake-like thing or Moshe becoming very ill. And the reason he's being punished is either because he's delaying going to Egypt or because he's delaying in giving his son Eliezer, the younger son, a circumcision. Okay? That's the, the, the simple approach. Um, one thing that this approach does not address is one of the questions we asked earlier. The question we asked earlier is why, while Moshe's traveling, does God, so to speak, remind him about the firstborns, right? Because you are going ahead and killing, you know, uh, you know be, uh, Paro, release my firstborn. If you don't, I will kill your firstborn. Okay? What's that all about? What's that doing here? Let's try to address that. Okay? So, um, Bef- yeah, I'll mention, uh, um, where should we start? Let's start over here. I'm going to read to you something from Rav Moshe Lichtenstein. Rav Moshe Lichtenstein is a great scholar who lives uh, in Israel. Um, he, he, um, his father was Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, who was a son-in-law of Rav Joseph Soloveitchik. Um, he, he co- he's coming to address the following. In Mo- how, how old is Moshe when he leaves Egypt? Anyone know? 80. When he leaves Egypt the first time, sorry, excuse me. When he leaves Egypt as a, as a you know, he, he, the Torah says, sorry? I heard 20. Yeah, some say 20, some say 18. Okay, bottom line is the Torah, it doesn't say explicitly. It was not, not meant to be a trick question, but it's a trick question. It says he grew up, so he's a young adult, 18, 20, okay? And then the next time we hear about him is in Midian, where he marries, you know, this woman. There's, and, and then he, he goes back to Egypt. He's in Egypt for, let's say, a year. Okay, and what, how old is he when he leaves Egypt? Like you said, he's 80. There's 60 years of Moshe's life, which is a black hole. Remember, he starts his career at 80. Okay, anyone who tells you, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm too old. He starts his career at 80. That's when Moshe gets his beginning. But for more or less 60 years, there's a vacuum. We don't know what happened. Okay, so this is Rav Lichtenstein's suggestion as to what happened in the interim, or at least to help us understand Moshe's mind. So I'm going to read to you a quote. Says Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, bring us back all the way to the beginning of this week's Torah portion when Moshe is a young man. He says, on the first day, this is when Moshe, upon, uh, Moshe, upon encountering the Egyptian, whip in hand, Moshe immediately reacts to the injustice. The Torah tells us Moshe goes out to the slave fields. He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a, a, a Jew, a Hebrew, to death. So what does the Torah tell us Moshe does? And he struck the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. He kills him. He sees an injustice. Moshe is a man of Passion. A man who's seeking justice sees someone 
causing an injustice, he kills the Egyptian on the spot. No questions are asked, no discussion need be had, and no second thoughts ensue. He acts on the spot, burning with zealousness for justice and morality. All his feelings of justice and truth are aroused and find immediate expression. Immediate expression. The very recognition of this reality bears the seed of crisis. Let's read on. However, Moshe still believes in the stage as he deals the Egyptian his due share of punishment that the situation can be corrected. The full impact of the crisis hits him only on the next day. It is only then that he understands the full extent of the problem facing him and the difficulty of establishing justice upon earth. Prior to his departure from the palace to visit his brethren, he had never imagined a reality in which one nation could be so oppressed and humiliated at the hands of cruel enemies. When he becomes aware of this reality, he assumes as self-evidence that the oppressed nation will do everything in its power to rise up against its oppressors and fight, its, uh, fight against its bitter fate. Right? So Moshe assumes, again, Moshe grew up where? In Egyptian palace as a adopted son to Pharaoh, right? To, to Batya. He leaves the palace. The first time he leaves the palace, he says, look, they're slaves. I'm going to save them. And what does he do? He kills an Egyptian taskmaster. What does he assume? Is the people are going to like, yeah, great. Let's go. We're going to, you know, we're going to assume our identity. We're going to reclaim our dignity, right? However, what happens? The next day, upon encountering the socio-historical reality of Bnei Israel, he realizes they have no will or inclination to rise against the situation, right? What happens the next day? He sees two people fighting, two Jews fighting. And he says, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you fighting? And they said, well, are you going to do the same thing you did to, you know, you did to that Egyptian? So what's, if we were there, what would we say? We put Moshe on our shoulders and say, let's go, right? And that's what Moshe expects. He expects him to say, here's our leader. Here's someone who's going to save us. Instead, they, they say, what, what are you doing? Killing Egyptians? What are you rocking the boat for, right? Rather, he finds apathy. And further injustice, apathy in the face of their situation and injustice in their dealings amongst themselves. Historical reality is not perceived by them as something to be changed. They do not imagine such a possibility. From their point of view, the Jewish people's point of view at this point, the tyrant and the slave driver are fixed and unchanging facts of life. History includes injustice and a strong regime like a strong animal in nature will persecute and trample. If Moshe expected that his actions on the first day would awaken his brothers to refuse to accept such a situation and arouse them to act, the second day causes him bitter disappointment. The cruel reality reveals itself to him as being more deeply rooted than he had realized. In other words, on the second day when he sees what happens, Moshe throws in the towel. You know, what are the words that Moshe says after they, they say this to him, after the two Jews say, what are you doing? He says, Achain noda hadavar. Now I understand. The commentator, understand what? According to Rabbi Lichtenstein, saying, I understand why they're slaves because they have no interest in ever freeing themselves. Okay, I'm not going to read it because it's, it's very, uh, you know, he writes too poetically, so I'm just going to summarize. It's hard to, 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 to hear this, not read this. Basically, he says, the next day what happens, the next passage, we find Moshe at the, at the well in Midian. And, and what happens? At this point, Moshe is described as an Ish Mitzri. The daughters of Yisro describe him as an Egyptian man. Why does the Torah tell us that they describe as an Egyptian man? So according to Rav Lichtenstein, and I'm, I'm incorporating two, two, two approaches here, him and Rav Soloveitchik, basically Moshe at this point has said, the Jewish people, they're not interested in a life of dignity. They're not interested in a life of freedom. Moshe in some, doesn't just look, doesn't just wear Egyptian garb as he runs away, but he's described as an Ishmitzri. He says, I'm not, I'm not part of this nation. I'm not part of this nation. He's given up on them to some extent, right? And then what happens? And then, uh, you know, so Moshe at this point has really given up on his connection to the Jewish people. So let's, let's pause over here. What Rav Soloveitchik and Rav, Rav Lichtenstein are, suggest is that when we then find a silence in Moshe's life, it reflects Moshe kind of disengaging. 
That silence is, you know, uh, a teacher used to say that silence is deafening, right? Sometimes you can have a silence that is uh, a loud silence. You know, sometimes you say something to someone or someone says something to you and you pause, right? And there's a long pause. A little bit like that, right? And that's a silence that's loud, right? When we have this gap in the years of Moshe, of 60 years, it's basically Moshe saying, I, I don't feel a connection. It's a silence of Moshe saying, I'm done. He basically threw in the towel. He walked away. He walked away from the Jewish people, literally. I mean, he, he ran away and he's identified as an Egyptian. He tried. I wanted to be part of them. They rejected him. They pushed him away the first time. He wants to have nothing to do with it. So Moshe at this point is, you know, and, and some suggest, or, or Soloveitchik suggests that part of the give back and forth when God is trying to persuade Moshe to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt, part of why he's pushing back is not only because he's humble, although that's true, part of it is because he's not part of the Jewish people. He doesn't see himself as a part of them. I know it sounds so, I, like, what I'm saying sounds so sacrilegious and so crazy because it's not the, the, the image that we think about, but, but think about, put yourself in Moshe's shoes. Here's someone who tries to rescue them. They completely give up on him. The Torah goes out of its way to describe him as an Egyptian. It's basically saying he is not seen as part of them. And then we find Moshe saying, I don't want to do it anymore. I tried this. I know how the story ends. Moshe is basically telling God, they're not going to believe in me. How do I know? Because I tried this when I was 20. And they said, no, we don't want to be, we don't want to leave. We want to be slaves, right? So Moshe doesn't really, he's not all in. He's not all in. Okay, so that's, that's background. Any questions on that? I know that's a bit of a novel uh, way of thinking about things. Yes. So it, those two do not, you know, there's a gap between those two. Moshe rejects his personal connection to the Jewish people, but uh, that doesn't mean he's not growing and become, you know, the commentators actually point out, if you read closely, he's not actually living in Midian. He actually leaves Midian and seemingly also disgusted by what he sees in Midian. Remember, what's his first encounter with Midian? The well where there's further injustices. He's living this nomadic, monastic uh, life in, in the desert. Connecting to God, right? A growing... You know, focused on, on imagine, imagine, you know, shepherds, it's a cool life, right? You, self-reflection, you, no, no phones buzzing, no people, you know, just growing. He's so, I, I, no, no reason, I don't think there's any reason to assume he's an idolater whatsoever. He is a growing individual, but his connection to the Jewish people, his commitment to the Jewish people is tenuous, is weak. I, okay. I think what you're saying is, is very good. I mean, I think of myself, I'm close to Moshe's age now. <laughs> you're about to get, let me know when you get started, okay, with your... <laughs> Like yesterday, I was a kid, and I ran into Meshuganas who were idealistic, and now I, I bump into Greta Thunberg. <laughs> okay. She's very punctilious about recycling. <laughs> why? Because she wants to save the world's climate. Right. And I'm thinking, what a Meshugana. <laughs> what, what, what do we, where do we get people like this from? But So he's, he's put in a position like this, I think, and that's uh, a reasonable approach that he's taking right now that uh, and he needs to be instilled by the word of God God personally puts the fear of God into him otherwise it's ridiculous this story right right he did neglect that he was a Jew and the Jews have this very strong position on circumcision yes his wife is a new is sort of uh, unfledged in this business, but she knows about this. Correct. So she, 
Well, again, assuming, like many commentators assume, he already circumcised his older son, right? So this is the next son. She's, a, she's aware of this practice, right? she's impelled to do something. Right, right, know, right. Because she sees him, God, something's going wrong here. He's got right. to, you know, Good. go forward and do this, do, uh, uphold his tradition. Right, right. So let's, let's take that a little bit further. Let's take this whole thing a little bit further. Uh, yes. It's a good question. You know, the, the, the Midrashim say, keep in mind that, you know, there's this funny little, you know, as children, it's very ironic and cute and nice. You know, who, who nurses Moshe? His mother, right? We, we know that from the text. Um, so, you know, it, it might sound crazy to, to me and you, but, you know, people, people, first of all, nurse back then, at least, you know, until the age of three, that was pretty, fairly typical. Um, so, you know, we could assume Moshe was an incredibly precocious child. Um, some level of education. I mean, that's, that's the, the depth of that, that, that passage, right? Otherwise, it's just, okay, it's cute. Like, ah, so cute. Like, his mother ended up nursing him. No, what's the point? The point is that his mother is able to impart upon him not just literal milk, milk, but, you know, an education, the sustenance, spiritual sustenance as well. So that's, that's how most understands. That's how most understands. You know, the, the more philosophically inclined to understand that Moshe could, could come to these conclusions on his own uh, through, through philosophy, through reflection. But, okay. So, so the Ibn Ezra says something very interesting. The Ibn Ezra, again, is a Spanish commentator going back. Uh, he, he, he says, he, in, in, while he's describing this, uh, this approach, he rejects another approach. He says there's an approach which he thinks is totally wrong. Totally wrong. He says it's written by people lacking wisdom. He says, who say that, you remember that verse that we saw earlier that says that, Bincha bechorcha, where are we? Um, where it says that uh, you know that shalach uh, benivi uh, avdeni. When when God said, "I told you," uh, verse twenty three or chaf gimel. If you turn the page back, right? Valmari lacha. I said to you, shalach benivi avdeni. Send you send your son to me and serve me. Vatimaein lishalcho, and you refrained from sending him. Hine anochi horegis bincha bechorcha. I will hold back on. Uh, I, will, I will kill your firstborn son. Says the Ben Ezra, there are those who say, and he rejects this, but we'll try to understand it. He says, there are those who say that this was not God saying to Moshe, you should tell this to Paro, but rather this is God speaking to Moshe. Let's read that verse again. Verse 23. And I, right, verse 12. Um, so, um, so I said to you, who's you? The simple understanding is this is a message that Moshe is going to give to Paro. Paro, I want my sons, my children, my, my Jewish people to come and serve me, and you are going to refrain, and therefore I'm going to kill your firstborns. But again, what I point out is in the singular, right? So I said to you, says the Pasuk, this is God speaking to Moshe, according to this approach. Send out my son, singular, that he may serve me, but you have refused to send him. Behold, I shall kill your firstborn son. I will therefore kill your firstborn son. And Ibn Ezra says this is not the right approach. But let's try to understand that approach because I think it, it, it's, it's fascinating and it, it aligns with the, the approach we just said, we started laying out. As I pointed out, Moshe is a little bit ambivalent about his connection to the Jewish people, right? He's, he's focused on God, he's connected to God, but his connection to the Jewish people is in some ways, you know, lacking. You know, some, there's, a, there's a famous medrash that says that Moshe made a deal with his father-in-law Yisro. They say as follows, that Moshe, Yisro, his father-in-law, was someone who the Midrashim tell us, tried every faith. You ever read these books of these people who like, I tried Buddhism for a month, and then I tried, uh, you know, whatever, Christianity, and then Islam, and then Sufism, and then whatever, 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 and, you know, I tried them all. That's what Yisro did. Yisro tried every single religion. And Yisro said, that's the best way to do it. Because you try everything, and then you come to the right conclusion, this is the right thing. 
right? Moshe didn't think that was, you know, what, what, bottom line is the Medrash says that Moshe made a deal. My firstborn son, Gershom, you could do that. You could let him explore all the religions. The next son, I'm going to teach him my own way, okay? So with that in mind, and with what we just said about Moshe's ambivalence to begin with, we can understand where this approach is coming from. What this approach is suggesting is that, again, I just want to re- repeat, again, on 310 and 311, there is a funny little passage in the middle of his entire travel where God reminds him of something, which seems to be repetition. But, but what we're, we're reading now, let's read it the new way. Moshe is telling, excuse me, Hashem is telling Moshe, Moshe, you should know you're going to go to Paro and he's going to harden his heart. And then I'm going to give him a whole bunch of plagues. Okay. And why am I giving him all these plagues? Because there's my firstborn children, the Jewish people. And I said to you, Moshe, have your son serve me, but you refuse to have him serve me. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to the fact that Gershom was not someone who was connected to God. And therefore, Moshe said, God says to Moshe now, Moshe, you're on your way to Egypt and you're going to be demanding a paro to do incredible things. You know, imagine you had a slave market of millions of people and you were being told, go and free them all. It's very easy for us to say, well, why didn't he free them? What's wrong with Paro? What's his issue? His issue is, it's like going to the President of the United States and saying, hey, I want you to go ahead and liquidate the entire uh, stock market and flush it down the toilet. That, that's equivalent. That is the entire, that's what happened. That's where the Civil War broke out, right? Um, okay. But the, but the point is, um, uh, the point is that, uh, that, that this is, the, the entire, Moshe's asking Paro to do something incredibly uh, challenging. And so God over here is telling him, you have the chutzpah. You agreed. You agreed this is the right thing to do. To go to Paro and demand of him to go ahead and release all the Jewish people. And why? Because they're my firstborn children. Says, says, exactly. Says God to Moshe, hidden, right? Double entendre. Basically hidden in this whole conversation. He's saying, and I said, you know, Paro, you need to release my firstborn. But I'm also telling you, Moshe, I want you to ensure, you want Paro to give up so much? Can you sacrifice a little? Can you ensure that your son is not serving other deities, but instead is serving me? I told you, I told you, apparently this conversation happened, that I want your son, Gershom, the older son, to serve me, and he is not, and therefore I'm going to kill him. And therefore you could understand the next passage, what's happening, Zipporah goes ahead and circumcises a son. It doesn't say which son. Rashi and all the commentators understand it's the younger son. But according to this approach, it's likely the older son, the older son, the one who was never circumcised because of that deal, basically said, oh yeah, the firstborn, Yisro, you could have him. He, I don't need his level of commitment. And God, the whole point of this passage is God saying to Moshe, if you're in, you got to be all in. You can't do, you can't just go ahead and say, you know, say some, lead the Jewish people without you yourself being fully immersed, ready to sacrifice everything in order to do so. So uh, this, okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a, right? Let me just quickly summarize again this, what, what, what we're reading over here, at least according to this approach. According to this approach, which is primarily based on the Yalkut Shimoni and the Ibn Ezra's rejected approach, what this, what, what's going on over here is that God is telling, as Moshe now finally agrees to go, Moshe, God is stopping him on the way and saying, uh, 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 one more thing. It's not enough that you're going to go and be a spokesperson. In Judaism, we don't believe, you know, there's a, there's a story they say, I don't know if it's a real story. They say a story of a, um, of an ethics professor who was caught, uh, you know, doing something ra- ra- rather unethical with a student. Okay, so they have an interview with this person. Again, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a good story. And they turn to the, 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 the professor, they interview him, and they say, you know, what's going on over here? You're an ethics professor. How could you do something so unethical? What's, what's you know, it seems so bizarre. And he said, he said, do you ever ask the math professor why he's not like a triangle and why he's not a math, you know, mathematical, mathematical equation? 
Ah, he teaches math. I teach philosophy. It's not my place to, to be a, a, a moral person. I teach morality. I don't have to be a moral person. God over here is rejecting that. God is saying, no, if you're going to be a teacher of the Jewish people, if you're going to lead the Jewish people, you yourself have to be all in. It's not enough for you to be the spokesperson. It's not enough for you to stand in front of Paro. You have to show him through your own life how much you're willing to sacrifice. And therefore, the way we're reading it now is that God is telling Moshe, I want Paro to release the firstborns, but you, Moshe, have to release your firstborn. And if you don't do so, as we're about to see, I'm going to kill you. You are going to get killed, just like I'm going to kill Paro. Moshe and his wife get it. She goes ahead and circumcises that son, who until now, the Gershom, the older son, who for years has not been circumcised, demonstrating the family is ready to commit to sacrifice, and now Moshe is truly ready to lead the Jewish people, not just as a lecturer, not just as someone who superficially is going to lead the Jewish people, but as someone who is fully immersed. We have to practice what you preach, so to speak. He has to be in, and then he can now properly, as he's about to, go and lead the Jewish people. Okay, questions? Yes.